I'd like to introduce tonight's moderator, Dr. Arnold Milstein. Arnold Milstein is the medical director of the Pacific Business Group on Health and the chief physician at Mercher Health and Benefits. Pacific Business Group on Health is the largest employer healthcare purchasing coalition in the U.S. His work and publications focus on healthcare purchasing strategy, the psychology of clinical performance improvement, and clinical innovations that reduce spending and improve quality. He is the co-founder of the LeapFrog Group and the Consumer Purchaser Disclosure Project. He has been described by the New England Journal of Medicine as a pioneer in efforts to advance the quality of care. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Arnold Milstein. Thanks, Thomas. About 50 years ago, the idea of Americans going to lower-wage countries uh, for health care would have been considered absurd, uh, a basis of, uh, of perhaps lead in line to a joke. Uh, a joke, actually, that about 50 years ago uh, would have also been told uh, about a, uh, another uh, uh, new entry into America's consciousness, which was a, a laughable uh, vehicle called a Toyota Corona. <laughs> 50 years later, Toyota products are you know, clearly no longer uh, a basis of, of a joke. In fact, they are, the word is now you know, kind of synonymous with uh, quality and value uh, in American uh, transportation. What about healthcare? Is that is that poised to uh, to take a, a similar journey? Uh, there are a number of trends, you know, unfolding now in the U.S. that uh, make that a little bit more plausible now uh, than it might have been uh, 50 years ago. Now, one is over that 50-year time period, American uh, healthcare costs have every year uh, grown much faster than American income, as represented by. Uh, growth in domestic uh, uh, GDP. Some have analogized it to essentially this idea of, of boiling a frog, you know, one degree, uh, one or two degrees a year. It's been very gradual rise, but we now uh, have begun, you know, to approach circumstances where I'm sure many of you are familiar with the fact that, uh, that many, many Americans can no longer uh, afford uh, health care. And as they turn to their more affluent citizens and say, well, how would you like to pay for my health care? Some of them are balking and saying, I don't think so. And for those Americans, offshore surgery, 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 especially surgery in lower wage countries and other types of health care has gone from being a joke to being, in some cases, their only opportunity, and particularly for non-emergency health care. Will uh, uh, offshore care, or as it's known, medical tourism, you know, go this route? Initially, it's a, it's a pathway that was primarily, primarily occurred for uh, services that weren't covered by health insurance, you know, cosmetic surgery, uh, liposuction, uh, uh, full, full, full dental replacement. That was sort of the, the first path. Uh, but more recently, a, a very interesting and in some ways more threatening phenomenon to American doctors and hospitals has occurred, and that is... Uh, large uh, self-insured employers, large unions, and large health insurance companies are now being, beginning to offer to insured Americans uh, the opportunity to, uh, within, within their health insurance networks, to, uh, to seek care uh, from, from offshore doctors and hospitals, and often to very substantially share with their insureds uh, some of the savings that, that come, uh, associ uh, come from, from such uh, offshore use. So, you know, exactly how far, you know, might, might this go and, and what are the people thinking who are sort of at the leading edge of this, uh, of this change? To help us think that through tonight, we have uh, three people who are eminently qualified to speak on this issue. Immediately to my right is uh, Elizabeth Martinez. Uh, Elizabeth is a, uh, an anesthesiologist and a, a member of the faculty at uh, America's one, one most prestigious uh, medical schools, the Johns Hopkins uh, School of Medicine. Uh, she's an expert in surgical quality control. Without telling you, there's, there's actually a number of other aspects of her credentials that make her you know, particularly knowledgeable on this particular topic, but I'll, I'm going to give her a chance to tell you a little bit about that. Uh, to, to her right is John Gillian. John Gillian is, a, is an internist. He is the, uh, the chief medical officer of one of America's most respected faith-based uh, healthcare systems, uh, Christus Healthcare. Uh, he is uh, based in Dallas. Uh, Christus operates... Um, uh, well-respected uh, hospitals and clinics and other 
uh, healthcare facilities, not only in the American Southwest, but also in Mexico. And John's the uh, chief medical officer responsible uh, for clinical quality control uh, for, that, for that system. Uh, sitting to his right is, uh, is Peter Hayes. Peter is one of America's, uh, regarded as one of America's most innovative uh, healthcare purchasers. He's the man responsible for improving the affordability and quality of healthcare uh, delivered to the employees of one of America's large grocery chains, Hannaford Brothers. Uh, maybe not familiar to some of you because it, it's, its territory is primarily New England. And Peter's the one that, uh, that not only uh, Hannaford executives, but also uh, Hannaford's uh, employees, you know, who are in the grocery business and not, not perhaps paid on average as well as employees in, in, in higher wage industries like high technology, they, they both you know, look to Peter to come up with innovative ideas that might, might enable them to achieve equal or higher levels of health, uh, but with a lower paycheck deduction. So a little bit more of that money is left over to pay for some of the other things in life that are, that are important to people. And, uh, and, and obviously I wouldn't have him here if he wasn't especially well qualified. Uh, to talk about uh, medical tourism. So I'm going to ask uh, each of these uh, three panelists to, in you know, five to eight minutes, uh, talk about uh, their experience with uh, Americans uh, securing care uh, out of the U.S. in lower-wage countries, uh, and then after they've had a chance to, uh, to, to, to introduce their experience, I may or may not ask them a single question uh, before we, we, we move through the whole panel, and then uh, I ask them uh, jointly uh, several questions. Dr. Martinez. Hi. Um, as Arnold said, I'm an anesthesiologist and ICU physician at Johns Hopkins uh, with a focus in care of cardiac surgical patients. And so over the past uh, 11 years as a faculty member, I've worked on quality improvement initiatives and done research uh, among those aspects, looking at how we can improve care and, importantly, how we can measure that and share that information with others. And that role has expanded to other surgical areas uh, with a focus on many of the national quality measures that are being rep reported uh, in pay-for-performance initiatives um, to, to, as an example. My most recent experience with um, medical tourism was as a consultant last March where uh, a group through um, Dr. Milstein's group went down to Mexico and observed six hospital centers. And we focused on evaluating care for major orthopedic procedures and cardiac surgery, namely coronary artery bypass procedures or valve replacements. So all upon uh, an elective status, elective surgical procedures. And we set out to evaluate these hospitals based on both their uh, organizational components. So what structures did these hospitals have in place to look at their own quality, to evaluate trends in mortality, and to assess the quality of their care. In addition, we uh, met with providers and observed uh, care in the hospital. We went into operating rooms, intensive care units, intermediate care units, and the wards. We looked at areas um, such as laboratory medicine, um, OR sterilization techniques, to name a few met with nurses to ask questions about staffing ratios with a focus on those elements of care that have been previously shown in the literature to impact outcomes. Um, so again, nursing ratios and what structures they might have in place for care delivery. What we found, uh, not surprisingly, and we would probably find if we went to six hospitals in the US, was that there is wide variation in care uh, and organizational components. Our goal was to uh, try to give some sort of grade or comparison to a U.S. hospital through this process and looking at how does it compare to uh, a top community or a top um, university hospital or an average. One of our limitations was in any community that top or average might vary and where patients would otherwise be referred to would vary. We did finalize a report. Um, some of the other components and questions that were raised were whether the hospitals were um, International Joint Commission accredited, which I think we might talk about a little bit later in the discussion. 
and only one of the hospitals that we visited at the time was Joint Commission accredited by the International Society. And so we still had questions when we left because we, were, we had difficulty obtaining a lot of the data elements that we had set out to identify. Um, namely, and what all of, uh, I think, we would want to understand about a center that we would go to abroad for care would be specifics about case-specific mortality, complication rates, namely infection complications, which we are uh, very keenly uh, focusing on in the U.S. these days. And so we've been limited to be able to give a full scope uh, and picture of what the quality of those hospitals were. Thanks, Elizabeth. Before we go on uh, to uh, Dr. Gillian, can you just, you know, so that the audience, you know, has a, has a sense of conclusion, of the six hospitals that you looked at in Mexico, how many of them did you and your team, all things considered, rate as at least as good as the uh, proverbial average American community hospital? I would say on the, on the first review, and I have to definitely say that we didn't have all of the outcomes data, but just from observations, I would say three would be equal to community hospitals. Um, again, it was limited information, but looking at what they have in place, the commitment of their staff to quality, um, and what technological support they have. Um, I mean, some had better electronic patient records than we have in some of our community hospitals or our university hospitals, for that matter. But they had some incredible facilities, um, incredible equipment, and committed uh, providers. But I'll come back to my limitation in those in the, the key data elements that we were interested in. Thank you. Dr. Gillian. Well, Christus is a fairly new organization uh, formed uh, 10 and a half years ago now by merger of two Catholic systems that were in Texas. And the primary hospital base was in Texas, Louisiana, and then some long-term care, including one in Salt Lake City. Since then, we've grown and have now a hospital in Santa Fe, New Mexico. But uh, an opportunity came for us to partner with a hospital in Monterey, Mexico. Uh, at the time, we were really trying to be more forward-thinking as a, as a healthcare organization and recognize that there was this trend for medical travel and perhaps that was an opportunity for us to partner with someone uh, beyond the U.S. borders and then to um, see if there was opportunities that we could create some synergies of exchange of patients, for example, that might occur. I think I went with a certain arrogance to Mexico thinking that I was going to find uh, facilities that were very inferior to the U.S. ones and I was very surprised. The primary hospital in Monterey that we have that's called the High Specialty Hospital really had partnered with GE which had a big outpost in Monterey and so they actually have some of the equipment such as the rapid slice, 16 slice, 64 slice CT scanners several years before we get them in the U.S because they have to go through the FDA process on this side of the line, whereas over there they had a, a more streamlined process. So there really was a sophistication in some ways, but I do think what Christus did bring to them as well was the uh, more compulsion, I guess, toward measuring outcomes, which wasn't present in the, the Mexican medical unit at that time or the medical environment there. They weren't really, uh, hadn't been through the same types of processes we'd been in in the U.S., probably driven by Joint Commission and others that really required us to look more at outcomes. And so I think we were able to help leapfrog them beyond some of the evolutionary steps we had in the U.S. to be a more um, progressive institution on capturing outcomes data. And so we were the, one of the first, we were the first facility in Mexico to be Joint Commission International accredited at that Monterey facility. Medical tourism, was a program that we then embraced probably five years ago now and started working with our Mexican facilities to try to find ways that that might be uh, a, an opportunity for them to draw business from beyond just the confines of the communities they were in. And that's had some success. Uh, I think that, that medical tourism in some ways is still in its infancy. I don't think it's fully developed and probably partly driven by health plans willingness to pay for the uh, care delivered there. And so we see now uh, primarily um, care that's in the elective surgery area, uh, obesity surgery, plastic surgery are the two primary areas that we see in our Monterey facilities. 
but I think that there is an opportunity to grow beyond that. And we have patients, uh, we were talking earlier in, in the green room, we have patients who live on the U.S. side of the border down in the Valley of Texas who can't afford health care in the U.S. And many of them are Mexican uh, farm workers there who go back across the border for health care routinely. And having a facility that it has the capability to manage them on the border is one of our strategies now. So we're building hospitals on the border and have one in Reynosa. And it is attracting some medical travel as well. That one probably has a great opportunity. The employers on the U.S. side of the border are very interested in seeing if there is a way to develop an arrangement with them. You do have the crossing of the border issues that uh, you here in California are very familiar with as well. But that is part of the challenge is just that transit back and forth across that border. We have exchanged patients who needed care from the Monterey facility, particularly in the pediatric area. We have a big hospital in San Antonio that does uh, has a, a large pediatric uh, service. And so they've historically sent patients in the, in, from the pediatric area there. But that's been fairly limited. Uh, on the U.S. side, we've looked at, at uh, what I think you're hearing about in some, uh, is there, are there package deals that we on the U.S. side of the border can put together and attract then uh, people from distant areas, even in the U.S., to those U.S. hospitals. That's been done in some cases early on, cardiovascular surgery, if you recall. There were centers of excellence, weren't called that at the time, but they were really viewed as um, places that one should go for that type of care, and people travel to those for those services. But can you do it on more routine services? And that's still something that we, we struggle with. We don't have a lot of employed physicians in our model, and so getting a package pricing is a challenge for us on the U.S. side of the border. But that is, um, I think those are the opportunities that are there for us, and I think as the health plans become more expansive and allow then this uh, international travel for that, I think that will open up uh, some of these and, and create uh, the experience that people would expect on the U.S. side as well. John, both you and, and Elizabeth uh, uh, mentioned in your opening comments joint commission accreditation. And for those of you who are not uh, healthcare specialists, uh, that refers to the, uh, an American organization, an American-based organization, uh, named the Joint Commission on the Accreditation of Healthcare Organizations. And uh, that is, uh, has, draws its significance from the fact that that is the entity uh, that is used in the U.S. to accredit hospitals as being kind of up to, up to standard uh, with respect to uh, quality of care and, uh, and patient safety. Maybe before I turn to, uh, turn to Peter, John, could you just comment on whether or not in your, you've had a lot of experience with you know, your hospitals going through a Joint Commission accreditation, both on this side of the border and, and in Mexico. Uh, do you think it's a, a fair uh, assumption that if a hospital outside the U.S. has obtained Joint Commission accreditation, it is likely to be at least as good as the with respect to quality of care as the average uh, American hospital? I think that's a good way of positioning it. I do think that's the case. It, uh, and I would be interested in hearing what Elizabeth found when she did the review, knowing the Joint Commission standards as well. But I think at least you know that there are processes in place that in the Joint Commission of the last oh, maybe decade has really focused on patient safety. So it's not only about what we consider quality, but are you doing the things that prevent harm from occurring in patients as well? And they do have enough basis in their standards, I think, that you could say if they meet that standard, they would match the average community hospital in the U.S. Peter, what's your uh, experience with uh, Americans uh, uh, considering care abroad? Yeah, and I think, I think maybe I'll, I'll digress a little bit and share some testimonies with you or thoughts. One, I'm a frustrated liberal arts major, so I majored in geology, figured out I couldn't do much with that. Then I became an economics major. How I'm doing healthcare 20 years later, I'm not sure. So I'll start there. But, but I think what, I, what more importantly is, is really tell a story. I think Arnie really kind of set the stage at the beginning saying, we're competing in the global marketplace. And when you think about, if you pick up anything today, pick up electronics, pick up you know, TV, your Blackberry, cars, it is a global marketplace. And I say that because for us, we are the largest supermarket chain in the Northeast, predominantly in Maine. But about eight years ago, we were bought out by a European supermarket chain. They own about half their stores in Europe. They're spread out between Germany, Greece, Romania, some emerging markets in Indonesia. They also have stores in North America. And the supermarket business is extremely competitive. For every dollar of groceries, we make two or three cents. So it's a very, very low margin business. 
And for us, it's pretty simple. A supermarket is a cinder block building. It's got lights, refrigerated, shelving, and we put cans of peas on the shelf. And when I say it's a global marketplace, what, and th this is kind of the frustrated economics major coming through. If you look at what we are spending in the United States for healthcare, it is double any place else in the world. And we are getting far less. If you actually look at the number of preventable deaths we have in the US compared to any other industrialized country, we're dead last. So we're spending twice as much, we're getting far less in health, and why that's important for us is right now the difference in per capita cost for employees in a supermarket is about $5,000 per capita. And why that's important is that supermarket thing I told you about, the center block building, it costs about $15 million to build. And they can build that supermarket in North America, they can build that supermarket in Europe. And the problem becomes with that differential in healthcare cost, they make on that investment, it's just like a CD, they can put $15 million on the ground in Europe and over 10 years, because that's how supermarkets will last, that investment is worth $8 million more a store to them putting it in, North America, putting it in Europe than North America because of healthcare. And what that means for us in our marketplace and bringing it back to the United States, there are huge variations in cost across the United States. There's huge variations across the world, but in the United States there's huge variations. The lowest cost economic regions for healthcare are the southeast and the southwest. Those are the fastest growing economic regions in the country. Direct linkage between healthcare costs and economic vitality. If you look at the highest healthcare cost state, Maine is one of the highest, Michigan is one of the highest. They have lost more manufacturing jobs than any other state. And all I gotta do is look at the auto industry to know that healthcare is a major issue. So for us, it became economic survival for us. When I said we had those 50 stores, they just did a 50 store acquisition in Greece, Romania. We had 50 places we could build stores. In our communities, that were 10,000 jobs. That was 300 million in payroll that could have been in our communities if we'd gotten capital to grow. More importantly, for every dollar of payroll that's in a community, it generates seven bucks in economy. That was over $3 billion that could have gone back into the Northeast economy if we could have competed for those dollars to build supermarkets. So it's really, really important for us. We've got to get our healthcare costs down, significantly down. We think there's two places to do it. One is about, about we think we have to reduce our healthcare costs from 50% from where they are. We think there's a 25% or 20 or half of that savings comes from keeping people healthy and well. Things that you and I choose to do around healthcare is driving 30% of the cost. It's the Big Mac for lunch. It's all those other things I did today that I shouldn't because I'm on vacation. Those are the things that are driving cost. The other side though is right care, right place. And for us and our plan, like everybody else, we have a bunch of aging baby boomers. And the aging baby boomers aren't going gracefully. My whole, ski, my whole family skis. We still think we are 18 when we ski. We're still doing slopes we shouldn't be doing. So we're doing a lot of knee replacements, hip replacements, those types of things. In our marketplace, we've been talking, Maine's got the highest hospital cost in the country. We've been talking to the hospitals saying, we need better value. And one of the things we, we focused on, this happened, and this tells you how fast the marketplace is changing. February 2007, Reader's Digest, there was an article that showed for most major complex medical procedures in the US, you could go to almost any other place in the world and get them done for about a third of the cost of here. We focused on, for instance, we focused on hips, as the hips are a pretty finite procedure, well-defined. Hips in our state were costing us $50,000 a hip, if no complications. We just had a three-quarter of a million dollar hip because they got a staph infection. And so what we took a look at is we started looking, hips outside the US are $10,000. So we started looking, we actually went to Singapore. I was blown away, I spent a week in Singapore, and I, I have no clinical background, so we actually took the medical directors of the health plan we're partnered with, we got into the hospital, we got far more, we could actually get outcome information. We got information from that hospital we cannot get from our hospitals here in the US. They gave us staph infection rates, they gave us readmission rates, they gave us complication rates. They let the medical director actually go in and see surgical procedures. It is a hospital that's credentialed. We put a benefit design in place for our folks. And again, if you go back to the grocery workers, their average income is somewhere between thirty dollars and $40,000 a year. We don't, believe in high cat we don't believe in high deductible health plans. After our folks get $2,500 out of their pocket, we pay 100%. But a hip was cost costing our associate about $2,500 to do. That's, that's about 10% of their take home pay, gross pay. 10% of their gross pay, it's just not affordable. So what we put in place is we could get hips done in Singapore, Singapore for 10,000. 
We put a benefit design in place saying, we're not taking any choices away, but if you want to go to Singapore, we'll pay 100%. So there's no money out of your pocket, and we'll also pay up to $10,000 for our companion to travel with you. And when I asked him, we didn't have a single patient that did it. We didn't think a single patient would travel. But right after we did it, we did this in January 2008, after there was a Wall Street Journal article about this little teeny supermarket chain in the Northeast that did it, it was in Health Matters, Saturday morning in the Wall Street Journal. That next week, I got a call from a hospital in Wichita, Kansas, that said, you know what? We'll do all your hips, knees, and hearts for $10,000. But, I mean, we laugh, but it really was the first time that it started to create a marketplace saying, in an honest conversation around, what should we do? Right after that, I got a call from another network that had about 12 US hospitals. More importantly, though, we started to get calls from our local hospitals and our communities. And when I'd asked them about this, they originally said is, you know, we don't have to worry about value. We don't have to worry about the quality or the cost because we don't think a single patient will leave our community for care. And we don't think there's a single employer that dares move care out of our community. And it's like, that was like waving a red flag. Um, <laughs> And so we did, and one of those hospitals actually came forward and they said, we'll match that price. We, we've built a brand new hip replacement center. We will match that price for Singapore. They have now done about 12 hips this year. And our people have written, usually as a benefit manager, if you get a letter to your CEO and the CEO comes down waving it, it means you're dead. You might as well just, it's your pink slip, you're gone. These are letters saying it's the best care experience because what they did in that hospital is they completely redesigned the care experience where they, the patient goes in, they actually have apartments attached to the hospital, so the family of the patients are actually put up by the patients there. The family can actually take the meals in the room with the patient. And some of those testimonies, well, this was like staying at a five-star hotel. So what we were really trying to do is we are less interested necessarily in offshore care. We think that should be a choice. There are regions of the world, for instance, I, I have a nephew that, that um, was in an accident and is paralyzed, but they are doing stem cell research in Israel that has lots of promise for helping paralytic. So there's different places in the world that clearly have different advantages to the US, but what we really hope to do in the US is really start to set up, and some classic work done by Jack Winberg, who's, who's at Dartmouth, but has said for a long time, even the best institutions in the country usually do some things very, very well but they do some things not so well. They're fairly mediocre. What we want to be able to do is how do we find places that can specialize in delivering the best of care? And that's where we want our folks to go. So we've expanded. We've done, we've done hips and knees. Next year in our communities, we have hospitals that are coming forward that are going to start to do cardiac procedures, hips and knees, back procedures. So we really think it's less about the, interna it, the international marketplace will be a choice but it's really about how do we have a much better dialogue, how do we improve the care that's being delivered here? And I know Arnie said something about LeapFrog, but what people don't usually know today, in hospitals today, the mortality rates between the hospital you choose can be as much as 27% difference. The hospital you choose to go to to get care has a huge impact on your outcome. In our state, you know, one of the big things that's happened in our state that one hospital is really proud saying we now have our surgeons and health professionals washing their hands 60% of the time. You know, we run supermarkets where we're handling your meat and produce. If we had our workers only washing their hands 60% of the time, they wouldn't be employed by us. So where you get care, what we're trying to do is raise the bar of health care in the U.S. Thanks, Peter. Let me... Uh... <laughs> Yeah, thanks to all three panelists for terrific uh, opening statements uh, and wonderful grist. John, your your you know your job day in and day out is to try to you know um, do what can be done to uh, to help uh, and or stimulate uh, American doctors and and uh, nurses and other American healthcare workers to uh, to deliver higher value healthcare you know to uh, your customers better you know better faster cheaper. Um, why, uh, how can, I mean, a lot of us would like to believe that, uh, that we as a country are already, you know, pretty close to the, you know, so-called price performance frontier. Uh, but what Peter's, you know, Peter's experience suggests that we may be far away from the price performance frontier in the average U.S. healthcare, in the average U.S. hospital. What, uh, what makes it so hard for, uh, uh, for American hospitals and doctors to, uh, sort of come close to uh, 
either international benchmarks or even U.S. benchmarks for low cost and high quality? Well, it's a complex question, and I guess, Peter, one of the things I would say is part of the difference is you employ all of your employees. Most hospital systems don't employ the doctors, and so the doctors are really independent agents who come into our facilities and do their work. And that really is one of the key elements that's somewhat problematic. So it's really an influential model. You can try to encourage them and invite them to participate in this, but it's very difficult to make them participate in that. So I think that's part of the challenge. And so it really is trying to find, although I think physicians truly are interested in quality, and they don't resist because they don't want to participate in that, but if you ask any given, given physician, Am I pra do I think I'm practicing quality medicine, their answer is gonna be yes. And only when you show them the data, so collecting the data is really, I think, the way to do it, by showing them their own data as compared to their peers in that hospital, we find that to be the most effective. Now, I also have a problem with sharing data on a whole group that may not be a benchmark group, but it really is the first way to get the inroad because they'll respond to that. Uh, as most people say, physicians are driven uh, and they work very hard to get where they are and they're fairly competitive. And so when you show that they're not performing as well as a peer, they usually want to explore why and then are interested in changing. Um, I do think the other fact though I would point out, and it's quite often quoted, and there's a seminal article about the delay we have in uptaking uh, evidence that from the time something is proven to be an effective process in the literature and is accepted by most clinicians, it probably has a lag of about 17 years before it's fully implemented in the U.S. health system. And so you have this huge lag of evidence that you know, most people would say, oh yeah, that makes perfect sense, but really making sure that clinicians then use that in their daily practice is still a challenge for us. And so I think part of what uh, I like to hear about the electronic record is it, it will force that to some degree. So I think putting in an electronic record that really has standards of care built into it, um, what is called in the industry decision support, and that is if they don't make the decision you want, you raise a question. Uh, but it really is an electronic way of a reminder. Uh, physicians also are overwhelmed. There's a ton of data out there. If you look at the amount of medical literature that even an internist or a cardiologist or some specialist has to keep up with, it's, it's, it's virtually impossible to keep up with it in the given year, and it keeps growing incrementally. So um, I think there is, it is a complex question, but I think having data, sharing data, and then inviting physicians to participate in and trying to encourage that's the right way. You know, as I as I hear the, John's response, it, it occurs to me that you know, hard as it is to get physicians interested, and for that matter, nurses interested in in uh, in, in closing the quality gap, uh, either relative to America's best or offshore best, uh, hard as that may be with respect to quality of care, uh, even more difficult would be to uh, stir up physician and nurse enthusiasm uh, for reducing the cost of care uh, without lowering quality. Uh, Dr. Martinez, well, you know, is I know that uh, you know at at, uh, at Johns Hopkins, you in some ways you don't face as severe a problem as John described in his system, in that most of the physicians there are salaried, so it's uh, they, they they work for Johns Hopkins. They they presumably are should be uh, a little bit uh, easier uh, to um, uh, to uh, to to focus on improvement, whether it be cost imp improvement and affordability. Uh, efficiency or improvement in quality. Uh, yet we we know that uh, when in, in national comparisons are done, you know often academic health centers uh, do not distinguish themselves uh, um, on uh, on on quality or cost. What do you have any additional insights to offer as to why that is, and uh, and what could be done to uh, to essentially stimulate physician and nurse stewardship? both for the affordability of American healthcare as well as quality? I think there are, there are a couple of questions and how do you begin to then change behavior of the providers uh, on any level? But one thing I wanted to follow up with what you had said was that providers are feel overworked these days and there are a lot of um, competing priorities. And some of that is what is then being required to do from a pure paperwork standpoint, um, added burden, which I do think the electronic health record can facilitate, and then that can enables them to put it into their workflow where the data are being collected, they get the feedback, and you can give that information back to the providers. We've been way behind 
uh, in healthcare and having that ability to have the data. It has been powerful. I know that within our institution, it has been very powerful in, in, in engaging uh, providers. Um, it is having somebody who is very interested and committed to that, I think, to lead that, to help guide the other providers, nurses, physicians, and understanding uh, what, what their practice is, how that might impact a patient, so giving them feedback on they didn't wash their hands and this patient had a staph infection, then it might have been as a result of, of, this, of this interaction, and getting out, out there and having those conversations. Um, but it, we do need to um, give physicians and nurses more tools, I think, to, to continue to make those steps forward. And there is a lot of hope in the electronic patient record, but it does also take um, leadership within those institutions to make it a priority, um, not punitive, but to uh, embrace it and make it a top priority of the, of the hospital or hospital system. P Peter, you know, in the, uh, in, as, as you were pointing out, you know, in the, in the, in the grocery industry, uh, you know, getting people to, uh, to do it right is a matter of business survival. Is, is the behavior similar to how you know, other businesses operate when it's a matter of business survival? Is that a reasonable aspiration for the healthcare industry? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean you know, a couple different analogies. One, in our business, because we're handling food products, it, it, one is, you know, you're, you're visible, your customer will see you, but there's also really strict regulations around food handling because it's a public safety issue. So there's, there's lots of rules and regulations we have to follow. I would certainly suggest that in healthcare, and if you really look at it, certainly from LeapFrog and some of the other things we know, there, there's certain things that really is providing a public good. There should be some things that are just required. So I have a concern. And then the, the other pieces we're talking about, the cost, and I think it's really enlightening in the state of Maine where we have some of the highest healthcare costs. We just did, the state has actually commissioned a study where they worked, they worked with Jack Winberg, Dave Winberg, the Dartmouth Atlas, and the state has concluded that over 30% of the hospital services being delivered today in Maine do not improve the quality of care. There's no medical benefit to doing it. So there's a huge opportunity to take some of those unnecessary procedures on. And I'll give you a good example, and I think it kind of built on what you said around mentally invasive procedures. We just did a process by which there are now a dozen or so procedures that can be done through minimally invasive procedures, which just means instead of open surgical procedures for uh, you know, apodectomies or hysterectomies or a bunch of things, they actually can do it through quarter size incisions, or in some cases, they can go in through natural body openings. I just don't want to know any more, any more about that. But, <laughs> but, but apparently, but it's really remarkable. When they can be done and when they can be done successfully, it has incredible impact on the patient. One is 50% less chance of staph infection. People can return to their normal work life or daily life 50% faster. So not only is it less risky, they can turn to life a lot quicker. Yet in our state, we were only doing them a fraction of the time that we could. We, we worked with the healthcare community. They've gotten committed to get the surgeons all trained. In our plan, we ended up saving the plan about 1% of our total spend. We dramatically increased the numbers being done because what we said to our patients, we'll pay you a much higher benefit. Your out-of-pocket cost will be much lower if you actually ask for a minimally invasive procedure to be done where it can be. And what we ended up doing is the, the plan sponsors saved money, and it was the magnitude of about $500,000. But the participants, because the total episode of care is so much less, our actual plan members saved about 200000 out of their pockets, and because they had a better outcome, less time in the hospital, and return to life. So those are types of things that we can do as a medical community to really advance, because minimally invasive procedures, instead of it taking 17 years, we were trying to ramp up that implementation curve, and, and in a year's time, we got the medical community to agree that they're going to get all the surgeons trained because it really was the standard of care. So those are the types of things I'd love to think about us doing collectively that we can really ramp up that sort of speed to market. Because in our business, we can't wait 17 years to adopt best practice. We'll be, we won't be competitive, but we'll be out of business. Uh, do you think it would make your, your jobs easier, given your role in in trying to accelerate uh, quality of care and affordability of care improvement uh, in hospitals. If, um, if employers and unions and insurance companies that operate uh, uh, 
health insurance plans did indeed support quality improvement efforts and uh, and indicated that uh, you know maybe linked them with uh, with uh, with warnings that uh, if things don't if if don't get a whole lot better more quickly uh, they would more actively encourage their employees uh, either to go to uh, lower cost higher quality uh, facilities in the U.S. or offshore would that would that be a credible threat to uh, to, to practicing physicians and nurses at your institutions? I think it, it's been a challenge in Texas. Um, a lot of the uh, insurance plans there have tried to do some sort of rating physicians, and that's been their rudimentary way, perhaps, uh, not as sophisticated as what you described, but really looking at care outcomes, and it becomes a political battle then. I mean, you, you have the, sending an A, B, or C in the benefits booklet to given specific doctors. Well, and I think that's back to what you were saying earlier about people looking up on the web and, and recognizing. I don't think people, I think in the plans where they've incentivized that by having a tiered plan where mm -hmm. there was a lower copay or no, no additional out-of-pocket for the person to go there, it does drive the business. But the, one of the things about looking at quality outcomes is that's still not used broadly by the U.S. population as a way of selecting their health care providers today. Peter, you want to comment on that? What was if uh, yeah. John's saying is it's not credible to his doctors that uh, even if there is, even if local employers begin to uh, ask their insurance companies to rate doctors based on quality and or affordability, sign them an A, B, or, or a C rating, right. even if they take the extra step of uh, of, uh, of of saying to uh, their their insureds, your employees. If you go to an A doctor, you will pay less out of pocket. If you go to an A hospital, you'll pay less out of pocket. Um, you know, he's he's concerned that 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 still might not be uh, enough uh, to uh, move doctors. What are your what's your is that consistent or not consistent with your experience in Maine? Well, I'd say you know, in, in every marketplace and every community is different. But in Maine, we for for about three or four years now have we have designated all our providers primary care and 12 specialty, specialties, what we call providers of distinctions. And it's based first and foremost in what we're trying to get to, where is the right care? We're trying to get who are in the top quartile of quality and who are in the top quartile of all the resources they consume for like episodes of care. And in this case in Maine, we actually had the primary care physicians themselves come up and rate themselves. What we asked that community, what are the important attributes that should designate a primary care doc as being higher quality, higher value than others. And they actually developed the metrics and they report on a public website. So we have used it. Um, we, we have a benefit differential and we've driven a ton, of, a ton of our patients to that. And again, that's really accelerating. Those providers in the community want to become a provider of distinction. They're looking for what those quality measurements are and they're truly trying to strive. And I think. You know, what I'd like to suggest, and even the discussions in Washington, what's really amazing when we talk about the cost of health care and why we don't have a handle on it, is no one really knows what the cost of health care is, including the physicians that are referring you to the MRI or colonoscopy and other things. I'll give you a good example. In Maine, we want all our members to get a colonoscopy that should. I just went through that wonderful experience. I stalled. And, but in Maine, we have a community 60 miles north of Portland, Maine. A colonoscopy is $4,500. A community in Portland, Maine, you know, again, just down, the, it's a thousand. In Portland, Maine, we have providers that are getting reimbursed by the health plan $2,000 for an MRI, and another provider getting reimbursed $800. And usually the treating physicians don't know the difference. So what would be really helpful, I mean, I can't imagine it as a consumer, you can't buy a car, you can't buy a house, you can't buy anything without full disclosure about price. Yet you and I can walk into our local hospital and leave with a $750,000 bill, and there's no disclosure about price. And so what I like to suggest is, you know, when I buy a car, you know, the problem with healthcare is we're paying for healthcare every widget at a time. We pay for every aspirin, we pay for every bandage, we pay for every visit. You know, when I buy a Toyota, I'm not buying every nut and bolt in the car. I go to the dealer, I see this Toyota that I can see and feel is X number of dollars, and I can compare that to the next place that I can go. I would really love to see healthcare get to a point where you and I can consumers, and it's sort of, I, I just had an experience, I just came from Maine to here. I went out to Orbitz, and you kind of look up and said, okay, here are my travel options, here's the hotel I can go, and here's a rating system, I can sort them, here's my cost. I mean, why shouldn't healthcare be the same? If I need a hip replacement, why can't I go and get sort of a consumer price 
for that whole episode of care, irregardless of how many aspirin I have. Or, so I think we, in order to get a handle on cost in healthcare, consumers actually need to know what it costs. To be a consumer, it almost implies we have to have perfect information about what are my treatment choices, what are the outcomes, what's the quality of the centers that I'm looking at, and what's it gonna cost me. And I think if you start to have those attributes, we can then really start to really change how we deliver healthcare in this country. Do you have a comment on that? I just, I just want to make a comment about assessing the quality is that it's still, you know, we're starting to have new measures of quality and reporting these um, indicators, but that it's still a science that I would say is in its infancy. And as we begin to understand, and I know that we all know that medical care is much more complex than than purchasing a car and such, and there are a lot of different components that go into it, and patients have different um, associated disease processes, so they might come in for a hip, but they have congestive heart failure and diabetes, and then the next patient doesn't. So really understanding and getting accurate assessments of the quality is really an important, I think, very fundamental step, and we're, as we look and assess quality, we feel that we're, we're not at that level um, that is as transparent and clear to all of the consumers of, of healthcare. Let me you know, take this down to uh, you know, something uh, more personal. Let's assume that, you, that one, of your, uh, one of your parents or an aunt, un, 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 uncle or aunt that you're close to uh, needed to have a, a high-risk cardiac surgical procedure, since I know cardiac surgery is an area in which you're, you're an expert on risk. And what if they lived in, let's say, uh, an average uh, American city, and, uh, and they came to you and they said, you know, um, I kind of want to be, you know, close to home, you know, close to my, close to my family, and I kind of I like the idea of the internist who's taking care of me, you know, for, for a long time, being able to check on me in the hospital. Uh, but I've also heard that, fill in the blank, uh, you know, Mayo Clinic or Johns Hopkins uh, uh, or UCLA is really the, according to, you know, available information that I off of consumer reports or some other reasonably reputable is really the top place to go. So what I want to know, uh, Nice, is uh, is it you know is the is the additional advantage uh, in uh, in outcome that I'm likely to get from going to today's sort of top-rated hospital relative to the average you know well-regarded hospital in my community? Is that worth it? Well, actually, I had this experience recently with an aunt <laughs> who had a high-risk, um, not cardiac, but a, a vascular procedure. And they went, I'm from Miami originally, and they were going to go to another institution to have this done. And a lot, I had said, some, hit on some of the topics that you just hit on, that I do think that there is value if you have your primary care physician or your cardiologist or other care providers in your community and your family because I do think family is necessary for that overall recovery period, that's extremely important. For surgical procedures, it is unique. You need to have, you know, at the, at the first step, you need to have a good surgical procedure. But my advice to her was to actually go to a local center, find the best center, and certainly Miami might be easier to find um, a varied uh, group of proceduralist or surgeons or interventional radiologists to do this as opposed to maybe a small rural town. Um, but I did advise them to stay locally with that. Thank you. I'm very uh, sensitive to the fact that we haven't you know, given the, uh, the audience uh, a chance to ask questions. Uh, maybe I could, uh, we could, in Laura, invite uh, the audience to ask questions now. Hi, my name is Louis South. Um, <clears throat> there is a discussion going on here that I'm trying to connect with more. I am understanding it. Uh, however, it seems to be um, one that's very clinical. I guess that's your field. Um, I, I, I'm looking for uh, some kind of understanding concerning uh, single-payer universal health care. And what I'm hearing here is the idea of where we are today and uh, there is a looming future that's right ahead, that's not too far away, some kind of change is gonna happen. I'm not hearing anything about single-payer universal health care. Do you have anything to comment on that? Maybe I could refer to the audience and say, you know, if, um, 
we don't, no one really knows whether major health reform is going to uh, you know, get through uh, Congress uh, and be acceptable uh, to the president. But if you just think about what is being discussed now and say, well, let's hypothesize that those changes do occur, uh, do you think, you know, all things considered, it would or would not likely make a big difference in the speed with which uh, American, let's call it, let's focus on surgery, American surgery uh, improves uh, both quality and, and or affordability? Anybody want to take a crack at that? My answer would be for most healthcare institutions, uh, right now you have the government as the largest payer already under both the Medicare and the Medicaid program, and they already pay a DRG or a flat rate in most states for the services that are given. So in essence, we have not a single payer, but we have a 70% in some cases of our population covered by a single payer in essence now. And I don't think we've made strides, so I, do, I think it would depend on how that's structured, and I think that's the challenge. Just going to a single payer won't, won't solve the problem. The, the two pieces are separate, really. There is the the payment piece, the reimbursement piece, the coverage piece, and then there's the healthcare provision piece. And we're talking about how we engage the healthcare providers in making those changes happen. And I don't think we should rely or can expect the government to really make that happen. I think that's going to mean the institutions, the physicians, the nurses have to come together and make it happen. Thank you. I absolutely agree with that comment. I think the single payer discussion really is a, a discussion on how we pay for the healthcare system we have today. What we're talking about or part of this conversation is the problem is that we have some significant inconsistency in quality and outcome and we're overutilizing a lot of services and I don't see the two connect. We really need to fundamentally change how we deliver health care, which doesn't seem to be connected to the single-payer system discussion that, that's occurring right now in Washington. Question here to your left. Uh, my name is Woody Anderson, and I've been very much involved in Korea and, and their medical services over there. And of course, they have a, a nationalized program. But the one thing that I did find is that I'm also a veteran, and so I have my medical services at the VA, and at the VA, uh, basically UCLA doctors. Well, most all procedures are done by uh, residents, not by the top guy at the university. In Korea, if you're a foreigner coming in, you're going to have the top guy do the procedure. And I think there's a vast difference in those two. Do you agree with me at your university, your medical school? Um, I would say that we're, we're not affiliated with the, um, with the Maryland VA. Um, and that you do hear stories where residents are doing the procedures, they're being supervised, but you might not get the most senior person. In some situations, the most senior person might be doing the fewest procedures so that, um, for example, at a university, that they're just doing, obser they're observing procedures or observing residents, so when you actually get them, they haven't done that procedure in a year's time. The VA system, though, has had um, great successes in uh, transforming their care and trying to standardize practices in utilizing the, their a national database of practices, really leveraging their electronic data um, and patient record to look at their outcomes and practices. So I think that, so coming back to your question, I think it varies where you would go, what level of provider is actually administering the care. Well, let's, let me, let's take this back to your, your, your prior circumstance where your aunt, let's, let's hypothesize your aunt, you've now you answered your aunt's question and she's going to get you know, care at, at the best, re, most, best reputed of the local hospitals for, for cardiac surgery. But now she calls you back with a, uh, an additional question. She says, you know, the, it's a teaching hospital and, uh, and uh, what I've inferred, even though it wasn't made all that explicit to me, is that my surgery tomorrow the lead surgeon is not going to be the, you know, uh, one of the you know, senior people in the department. They're going to be in the room observing, but actually the, you know, the senior resident is, is, is going to be uh, doing uh, my, my surgery. Um, uh, you know, medical, I'm all in favor of medical education, but if I'm truly trying to optimize my survival, uh, <laughs> should I speak up and say, no, I will not proceed unless it's done by you know, one of the, you know, more experienced faculty members, or, you know, at a, at a good place, am I, am I, you know, pretty much equally safe, or only, yeah, or only, tri only, what would you do? She, let's say she turns, what would you do, Elizabeth? And what should, and then that, from that, based on that, she'll decide what she does. 
Well, it's very, I'm just gonna make a comment about speaking up in hospitals and such. I think it's a very difficult conversation for patients to have, but we've gotta learn how to be much more assertive and asking providers to wash their hands and, and, and ask specific questions about the care that we're gonna receive. With relation to who would be doing the procedure, um, first off, I would say that whenever we have VIPs come through, we tell all of our providers to treat them as, to not treat them as a VIP, so that whatever the usual care in your institution is, to have that be for that patient as for all patients. If it's a junior resident, I would ask to make certain that the attending is involved in the case, and actually in a different situation where it was a junior, a, a recent um, attending who was gonna do a procedure on another family member, I asked that family member to make certain they asked the provider if anybody, who was available if there was a problem. So who was, who was an available backup person? Because at any point, even the mo this most straightforward procedures, somebody can have a complication. So, uh, so it is, you said it's okay if, if, if <laughs> I, I think you're okay if you have the, re if the resident does it, but, uh, but only if you make sure that the senior supervising uh, physician is, is right there in the room. So if things don't go exactly right, mm -hmm. someone can step in. Is that Correct. Okay, thank you. Immediately Peter. available. Peter? Well, uh, two things. One, kind of address that. I was confused listening to that, mm -hmm. and I'd only suggest to expect the average consumer that's about to go under an emotional right procedure to be that astute to understand the distinctions it's pretty tough the second question for you I, I would like to address and I think it's absolutely fascinating because <coughs> Korea has actually identified that one of their growth industries they want is medical tourism and actually I went to a conference where they actually proudly put up as kind of a partnership between the government and the hospitals and they put up brands they're really proud of they said we've got one of the leading electronics brands LG we've got one of the leading car brands I mean who would have thought a Korean car would be higher than Toyota in quality and outcome. But they put up there a point of pride saying, we lead the world in these places. The next banner they said they wanted to lead the world in is in medical tourism. And absolutely, if you go there, they, they have the A-team that are really being applied to the medical tourism. Singapore is the same way. I mean, they're starting to market into Russia. They're starting to market into New York City. This is, this is a, a marketplace phenomena. And, and I'm amazed, I mean, you can go, and you were talking earlier about linking patient records and other things. If you go to Singapore, every encounter in the system is captured and is available, same with Korea. Korea is completely wired. I mean, where you enter the system, their system is completely wired. So in many ways, these, these offshore systems have leapfrogged dramatically ahead of the US. They're much more into IT, they're much more into the infrastructure, and they are delivering on average. Again, when, I, when we selected the hospital in Singapore, it was Jayco accredited, but it was, in, it was one of the best outcomes in the world. So I think your, your point is there are other systems that are saying this is care, this is a market we want to capture. We really want to capture so people will come here knowing and trusting they're going to get outstanding care. I think it was a really astute comment. Another question to your right. Good evening, this is David Johnson. Um, I have a quick question, or two questions, but the first is uh, mortality rates. Can you refer us to a website that carries mortality rates, if not the Joint Commission or another one? And also, on a related topic, you mentioned, for, this is for Mr. Hayes, you mentioned um, uh, prevention, savings from prevention yeah. and um, uh, pu uh, public awareness or information. Yeah. Uh, Han Hannaford uh, Grocers also made the news uh, when um, they instituted the practice of product health rating uh, yeah. color codes on yeah. the shelf tags. Yeah. Yeah. How is that going? Were you involved? And are other grocers adopting that uh, practice? Yeah, maybe start with the latter because I can't remember the first. So <laughs> it's Alzheimer. I'm getting older. It's, um, you know, it's fascinating. I said earlier, we're owned by Europeans. And, and it is estimated that 30 or 40% of the American health care cost has to do with diets, exercise, obesity. And it's really interesting because in Europe, Europe has what they call corporate social responsibility. So corporations in Europe, in America, everybody has to file their annual financial reports. In Europe, companies also have to file, and actually it's a bigger deal, they put a lot more money into filing reports that report out what they're doing in their communities to improve 
the, the health of their communities. So this all started when the Belgium government appealed to all the supermarkets in Belgium to take the unhealthy products off, the trans fats, the sugars, the other things. So what Hannaford did is, yeah, we hired leading nutritionists from UC Davis, University of North Carolina, Harvard School of Public Health, and we've actually gone through and rated all the products in our supermarket. We've given them stars, one star for healthy, two for healthier, three for healthiest. Mm -hmm. Only 25% of the products on our shelves get stars. So by definition, 75% of the product in the stores is not nutritious. And we did, we did, fo we did focus groups, and what, and what the baby boomers said to us when I said about the aging baby boomers, they said, even if we wanted to read the labels, we can't bring enough glasses that have the right font size. They said we, so they said, just make it simple. So we have this little running guy. But what's happened is, two things have happened that's been absolutely amazing. One is, four products, so, and they're in a mix. So if you see a can of tomatoes, the can of tomatoes that have stars are selling three to five times faster than cans of tomatoes that don't. And the other part that was a real plus for us, we actually, sort of the Jerry Maguire movie, we had a lot of the physicians in our community at Hello, because we make the most money on our own private label stuff, the private label that says Hannaford. None of our product got stars. We had added salt, <laughs> added sugars. And so docs automatically started referring their cardiac patients and their diabetic patients and saying, because they tried giving them menus to follow, they finally gave up and said, you know, just go to Hannaford, buy anything that has stars, and make that the main part. Of it. But it worked. So that's why we did it. We're trying to. Yeah, it is, it is now, it, is, it started with Hannaford, which is in the Northeast. It spread to all our other supermarkets, which are all up and down the Eastern Seaboard Food Lion, Cash and Carry. It has also spread to Europe. So they're starting to, to, to do that in Europe. Your other part of your question is yeah, we, we, we've done a lot. What we've done around our health plan is we give our folks a $20 per week healthy behavior credit. They get a $1,000 discount off healthcare, $20 a week, if they do things they need to do to take care of themselves. And we've had dramatic improvements. For instance, we had, before we started, we had 27% of our people that had untreated high cholesterol. A year later, we dropped that to about 12%, that they actually, we could see that they went, they got their scripts, they took care of their, their medical issues. So we're doing those types of things, and it had some dramatic improvement in, in healthcare costs. To answer your, your first question, um, you know, up until about uh, five years ago, it was really a state government by state government decision as to whether or not uh, you know, any information on comparative you know, hospital outcomes, you know, like mortality and, uh, and complication rates, uh, would, would be uh, required of, of hospitals. And, you know, and some states were more progressive than others. You know, perhaps the state that's been most progressive is, uh, is Pennsylvania in terms of the, the, the extent and quality of the information. They force hospitals rep to report, and then the state then transforms it into uh, an outcome scorecard that is uh, available to consumers. That being said, you know, uh, I would think uh, California is one of about maybe six states that is, uh, is you know, a, very, a very close second, at least for, you know, for some hospital treatments. Uh, such as coronary artery bypass uh, grafting, um, and uh, and certain uh, uh, outcomes related to uh, childbirth delivery in hospitals, uh, we at least we do have um, uh, uh, you know a risk-adjusted outcomes database that is uh, can be queried. I think the uh, the, the California uh, government agency is called Office of the Public Advocate. You know, so OPA. If you put OPA, you know, uh, and then the and then the state, uh, the state, the California.gov, you will uh, you will link to it. In addition to that, uh, quite a few of the health insurance companies, if you're lucky enough to have health insurance, uh, do uh, do subscribe to services that you know try to take you know all available data, and uh, and and uh, and and transform it into a treatment specific. You know, what about okay? What, what, if I, what if I need a treatment other than cardiac surgery treatment and do a, a pretty good job of it? It's not as, it's not as accurate as, as one would wish, not as perfectly accurate, uh, but it, at least is, there's a general sense that it's gener directionally correct. And then about five years ago, the Medicare program you know, jumped into the mix, and they initially just uh, said to hospitals, if you want to get your full Medicare payment, you have to begin, begin carefully collecting and reporting you know, the following quality information. Initially, the information that, uh, and that's by, by on Medicare.gov, that information. But initially, the, you know, the information was, was you know, pr pretty mild and, and hard to make judgments about, like, you know, 
you know, what, how many of your patients who've had heart attacks do you at least give aspirin to, you know, um, either when they come in or, or, or when they leave? Um, and, uh, and, and not something that maybe is all that predictive of, you know, of total outcomes. But more recently, Medicare has begun to uh, wade in, and, uh, and for a number of uh, high-volume medical treatments that, that Medicare patients get in hospitals, such as being treated for in the in, on an inpatient bed for serious congestive heart failure or for acute heart attacks, Medicare is now, has now begun reporting risk-adjusted hospital outcome comparisons for those two relatively high mortality uh, treatments uh, that, 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 are, that, are, that are delivered to many, a lot of Medicare patients. So we have the beginnings. I, if you would sort of say, where are we in terms of what you would want in terms of any time I have to go into a hospital, you know, when am I going to have risk-adjusted comparisons that show me, you know, what the best place to choose in the community is? I would guess at, at the current pace of, of, of progress, that might be at least 10 years off. But we're at least, you know, beginning to maybe we're 5 to 10 percent up the curve. So we're making progress, you know, relative to 10 years ago, but it's, it's painfully slow if you're the one, you know, that has, that needs the, needs the treatment or have a, has a loved one that, uh, that needs the treatment is looking to you for advice. I have a question. Well, well, let me make one point about that, though. It is hospital data. Physician-specific data is not often available. So you can get it on the, mm -hmm. on the institution, but not on the physician. That's where I give really California a star, you know, because at least for cardiac surgery, you can get that information on a risk-adjusted basis by surgeon, not just by hospital. Thank you. Uh, my name is Geneviève Clavrol. I am a nurse for many years. Today we are supposed to talk about medical tourism and we talk very little about it. But one issue which I think you could, should take in consideration when you talk about medical tourism is that the country where you are going, what kind of stable governments they have. Because I tell you right now, I wouldn't want to go to Thailand. Because, you know, if the king died tomorrow, you'd be in a bad shape, you know. They have bad re so I think, you know, you need to be informed of what's going on in the country. I think it's not so much in the quality in individual hospital, it's the stability of what's going on in that country at the time. Because they're all competitive for the market. Peter, how did you handle that? Huh? Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, we, 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 looked all, we looked at a bunch of different countries, and we chose Singapore, and we chose Singapore for several different reasons. One, excellent health care. Two, what we're really concerned about, and there's a great article that one of the health plans does, United Healthcare, and it shows someone in a hospital, Johnny, and it says, do you know you suffer a 50% hearing loss when you go to the doctor? What we're really concerned about, if someone's traveling to a country for their care, well, Singapore is an English-speaking country, so it was really important that the caregivers can make themselves understood by the patient. That was one. Two, we chose Singapore because they do have, it's not the same as the U.S., but they do have some type of tort system. Other countries, there's just absolutely no recourse for the patient. At least Singapore has some of that. Thirdly, Singapore is one of the safest cities in the world. And actually, I would digress a minute, and I, if I offend anybody, I'm sorry, we're actually somewhat concerned because in Singapore, when we went there, it actually said if you have any recreational drugs that you bring in, it's the death penalty. And in knowing our population, I'm thinking, you know, it'd be a bad headline if it said, patient got excellent care, but, yeah. but, but, but absolutely to your point, we chose Singapore because it is just as important about, and, and the other piece was, in some of the other countries you travel to, the, the travel from the airport to maybe where some of the facilities are can be pretty rugged. In this case, the, 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 the airport was right outside the city. It was really easy. They picked the patient up, take him directly to the hospital. So all those other attributes are very, very important to consider, too. That's a great point. Thank you. Thanks for your questions, and please join me in, in thanking the panelists.